also take out the handout sheet that is in your bulletin and we can begin. Uh, we continue through the Sermon on the Mount in part five of our Matthew series, which is going to be 23 parts at least. So uh, I'm sure I'll add something on there and make it longer. But for now, it's a 23 part series. We're in part five and I entitled today's message heart attack. And that's partly due to how you're going to feel when I'm done and also partly due to the content of the message. We're going to be talking about the intent of the law of God. So we will be diving in. We have a small amount of time today and we have an awful lot of material to cover. So let's get in right now. Before we begin our study, let's talk about some things that we need to understand as background to enrich this and help us to figure out what in the world uh, is being talked about here in Matthew. So let's talk about uh, the main issue. The main issue that's going to be brought up time and time again is the issue of the law. Now, I take it for granted that many of you know what I'm talking about. So let me very quickly just define how the Jews viewed the law. They viewed it in four different ways. You could it could mean any one of these four things. It could mean the Ten Commandments. They would say, and you know it was said in the law, and they actually mean the Ten Commandments. It could mean the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. It could mean the Old Testament completely, or it could mean scribal law. Now, scribal law is mostly what is going to be addressed here. All right. Now, what is what is scribal law? Well, the scribes were a group of people that sat down and looked at the Old Testament and began to pick it apart. They found out that there's 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. They got this stuff down to a science. So what they began to do from that point on was anything that was not explicitly clear in all those prohibitions and commands, they would tell you what they meant. And they added on over the years thousands of things that you needed to follow and learn. That was known as the scribal law. Now, in modern every day, because of the pressures, it held the same value as scripture. So they'll keep mixing the two together in their culture. They weren't sure what, which one was accurate and which one weren't. As a matter of fact, the scribal law was oral tradition all the way until the 200s. So by the time Jesus is talking, it's not even written down yet. It's not even codified. So they will say, you have heard it said. That usually means we're talking about scribal law. So the Jews were really confused as to what God really said and which part the guys were commenting on. It all ran together. And so what Jesus does in this passage is try to chop it apart and clarify. Hold on a second. That's not at all what the Bible says. What it actually says is this. And here's its true meaning. So they were getting an awful lot loaded into a few words. Now, to the Jew, the law is everything. If God uttered it, that's it. Don't mess with it. And what Jesus is about to do in his ministry and in his teaching is mess with the law of God. Now, that is a no-no in Jewish culture. In our world, in a modern-day America, we're kind of like, hey, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe. To the Jews, it was so severe that that was the main reason they started the point to kill Jesus. You do not mess with the law of God. Because God said it, and the only one that has the right to alter, adjust, or truly comment on the Word of God is God Himself. So when Jesus walks in with authority and says, I'm telling you, this is what it says, what is He in effect saying? 
I'm God. And they knew that very well, and that's why they put him on the cross. So as Jesus clashed with their law, not only in his teaching, he was clashing with it in act. What do I mean? In the book of Mark, the Sermon on the Mount is placed after two key events. One was the healing on the Sabbath. The other one was the Jesus and his disciples walking through the cornfield and picking out corn to eat. Both of those are absolutely against scribal law. In other words, they said on the Sabbath, God told us you can't do any work. And they kept trying to bust Jesus on the law. And Jesus said, that's not at all what it says. Quit telling me what it says. I'll tell you what it says. And I'm going to heal if I want to heal. Well, that had already happened. So you, you wonder how many people were sitting at the Sermon on the Mount waiting to bust him on something because they were, had already heard about this great rebel who was in the area. Now, what the essence of the Sermon on the Mount is, as I told you last week, is Matthew 5.20, which says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That is so dramatic because he's pushing everyone now to something they've never even heard of or dreamed of. Because if you already have 200 and some odd uh, commands and 365 prohibitions, and then they're putting on thousands and thousands of other laws and commentaries, what are called the Mishnah and the Talmud. If you got all this stuff laid on you and Jesus walks in and goes, you guys have been taking it easy. We're kicking it up a notch unless you cut it better than the guys who do this all day long. Every day, you're not getting in the kingdom of heaven. That was absolutely mind blowing to everyone listening because if the best of the best couldn't do it. What was he possibly saying? And didn't that just leave everybody outside the kingdom? That was the big challenge that's about to be a hit here. But what Jesus is going to consistently do is explain the interpretation and how it is fulfilled and correct the perversions that they have already done to God's word. Last thing I'll say on that part is that they challenged that Jesus kept changing the law. Jesus is going to be very clear that he's not changing in the sense of contradicting the law. He said, I'm here to fulfill it. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I want you to understand that what the New Testament is and what Jesus' teachings are can be looked at under the phrase of progressive revelation. You go, what do you, well, what do you mean? I mean, we all do it with our kids, all right? Progressive revelation means you give general principles, and then as they mature, you give the details on what you meant. Are we all clear on that? That's what largely the New Testament is. If you look at the New Testament as being contradictory to the Old Testament, you've missed something. They're actually perfectly in line. They're actually the same God saying the same things all the way through, just in more detail. They're not contradictory whatsoever. And Jesus is trying to point that out. Let me give you an example about how we do it with kids. With our little kids, we say block principles when they're small. Don't run in the street. Now, do we mean it? Well, yeah, actually we will. And they will get busted if they run in the street. But do we mean never run in the street under any circumstances? Then all the people jogging are completely out of line and they need to be sent to their room. You see what I'm saying? Obviously, as a child grows up, you begin to go, now then, let me explain what I meant. 
by saying don't run in the street. What I meant was don't run in the street without looking if a car is coming because you're not going to be able to see that. But since you're not aware of those events, I need you to listen to my voice and don't do it. Okay, in the same way, Jesus is going to be giving the details and commenting and saying, let me progressively show you what I always intended in the first place. That is what the New Testament is. There is no contradiction. Look at the fill in the blank in front of you, for I believe that this is key. Motives have always been important to God. Even way back when, when he laid down the Ten Commandments. Motives have always been important to God. And motive is the reason why Jesus makes everything harder. Is he revealed that once something is told to you, once a rule is told to you, you're now accountable to that rule. That's why Paul said the law killed me because I had no idea how guilty I was until I read what God really wanted. Then all of a sudden I found out, man, I'm a wretch. I'm horrible. That killed me. And Jesus brought me back to life. And you look at it and you go, well, then the law is bad. Well, hold on a second. Oh, I don't like I don't like rules. I don't like limitations on me. Well, first of all, that's just immature. But second of all, imagine a world where your God never revealed to you what he wanted and he would just randomly throw you in hell. You had no idea why. He never wrote down anything of requirements. He never said, I like this. I don't like this. Wouldn't that be worse? Wouldn't you rather have a God spell out very clearly? This is what I expect from you. The law is not bad. It's a tutor, the New Testament says. It's almost like someone walking alongside of you going, well, you know God doesn't like that. Or you know that's unacceptable in God's sight. Let me just let you know what he's approving of and what he disapproves of. It's not the problem. It's citing out your problems, and sometimes we don't like that. But what Jesus does is is all of a sudden, all these guys were really good at following the letter of the law. They made their whole lives, especially the Pharisees, because the scribes wrote it down. The Pharisees tried to keep it. They did it really, really good. Think about it for a moment. If I said, uh, have you followed the Ten Commandments? Well, according to the letter of the law, it's actually not as difficult as it seems. And the reason why we all go, no, of course not, is because we're thinking New Testament. Let's go Old Testament. Have you murdered? Now, I'm hoping that the majority of us here today have not murdered. Now, I don't know that, okay, but I'm going to assume. And if I said, have you committed adultery? Well, many of us have. However, not all of us have. So still we have a large section that's still fulfilling the Ten Commandments. Have you honored your mother and father? Well, on paper, you may well have done that, which is exactly what the Pharisees were looking at. Well, have you... Have you done stolen anything? And they go, well, technically, no, I have not stolen. You could actually go through and they got really good at fulfilling the literal writing. And then all of a sudden, Jesus walks on the scene and he goes, by the way, I appreciate all that effort. However, motives are the problem. And all your motives have to be pure as well. Boom, blew everything up. Now everybody hates his guts. It was kind of like everything I just worked for, you blew out of the water. You can't do that to me. And there was a lot of anger about that. Now, if Jesus kicks up the bar, he's likely going to talk to you about how to reach that bar. 
Now, let me use a quick analogy that may tie this in for you. Have you all noticed, I mentioned this a little while ago, but it came up again yesterday as I was driving to church. Have you all noticed that about every 10 years, world records are being broken like crazy in the Olympics? And you're kind of like, well, what, are we just becoming faster human beings? Or what in the world's going on? We thought back 20 years ago, we would say, the world record is this. Now, that's not an American record. That's a world record. We've examined the whole world and all the people in it, and that's the fastest we can go. Then, what, 10 years later, we got faster kids? Where does that come from? How is that even possible? We smashed through the record, and what used to be impossible has now become possible. Uh, 1972, Munich Olympics, really, really fast swimmer. His name was? Mark Spitz, he actually has held the record for a long time of having how many gold medals? But seven gold medals. Um, every event that he entered into, he won a gold medal in. Guess what? Michael Phelps is here. Now, Michael Phelps is a young man that raced in Athens. Um, in Athens, he was just going to try to win his first gold medal. He had never won a gold medal before. Young guy comes into it, ends up winning six. Okay? It's, it was a fantastic time for him. Then, from that moment forward, he began to look towards Beijing, which is starting here on August 8th. Now, when he enters into Beijing, he's up for eight events. Now, this is kind of significant because if he nails down gold in all eight events, he beats Mark Spitz's record, and then he gets cleansed off and Michael Phelps becomes the guy. However, here was a few interesting things I noticed about this kid when I was listening to the interview that kind of blew me away. First, they began to interview him and his coach, and it was kind of jumping back and forth with commentary, and these are the things I found out. Prior to Athens, he never had a team to train with, and he trained completely alone, and he was by himself, and he would always just kind of win everything that he would be involved in. Well, then all of a sudden he goes into Athens and never having a coach, a main coach or a training team, but doing everything pretty much on his own. He goes in and wins six gold medals. That's a big deal. Well, what was interesting is up until last year, he never lifted a weight in his life. Is that not bizarre? Have you guys seen this kid? This is craziness. All his life, he's never done weightlifting. And you're the fastest man in the water in the world. And you've never lifted any weights. Right after Athens, he got a coach by the name of Bob Bowman. Bob Bowman works up at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He works with a club called Club Wolverine. Now, Michael Phelps has too many endorsement deals to swim for Michigan. So he has to be in a professional team. The professional team is one of the best in the world. He all of a sudden joined in with a coach, began to train with these guys. He said, quote, now I cannot remember the last time I won everything at practice. Because every day, everyone's beating him at everything. They're shattering all over the place. He is pushed like never before. He entered a year ago into a weight training regimen to increase his strength and increase his speed. How amazing is this kid going to be entering into Beijing? Because he never trained like that before. Now, here's the point. Jesus raised the bar on where we're headed into the impossible. And what you're about to see, and especially as you begin to read in the New Testament and understand what he has done on our behalf, he lifts us up to reach that bar. 
And we need to allow our spirits to understand there's going to be a tension between Jesus saying, actually, you still need a savior. But along the way, I want to help you be just like me. That tension will remain through everything we're about to study right now, because what we're about to read will sting your personal righteousness. And if you ever thought you were a good person, boy, were you stupid. Here we go. We move. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter five, verse 17 as we begin Matthew chapter five? It's page 683 in the Bibles in front of you. If they were handed to you, uh, page 683, Matthew chapter five, verse 17. Let me just read a couple verses here and we'll pray for the word and begin. Do not think, Jesus said, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you open up our hearts and minds and spirits to receive what you are about to tell us? Lord, allow us to wrestle with where we have fallen short. For, Lord, we are in some ways very poor examples of your disciples. And in ways we are not Christian at all. For that would mean to imitate you. Uh, Jesus, you set a bar that is something extraordinary and we're never going to be sinless And you've made provisions for that. However, I do believe that this is a challenge towards being more and more holy, more and more perfect, just like you. Would you help us on that pathway? In Jesus' name, amen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah, the revealed instruction, or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them. That word is katalio in Greek, and it means to dismantle or destroy a building. He said, I'm not tearing down anything. I came to fulfill. That Greek word is pleru. It means to fill up with what is natural. In other words, what was supposed to be there. He said, I fulfill not only scripture that was surely written by me, by God, he said, but I also fulfill all the predictions and the prophecies of the mighty prophets. Here in your presence, it's being fulfilled right in front of your face, he said. Verse 18, I tell you the truth. Now, that's a significant phrase. In Matthew, you're going to hear it 31 times. So we're going to be talking about it over and over and over. 31 times he uses this phrase. It's very significant. Why? Because for all the teachers of the law and the rabbis, they would always say, thus saith the Lord. That was their way of escaping out of ever messing with the law. You had a bunch of catchphrases you would say. Jesus stormed right through the gates and said, let me tell you the truth. The only one that can tell you the truth is God. And that's why this was so shocking. They said he doesn't teach like any of other teachers. He teaches with an authority like he gets to say what's right. Jesus said that's exactly correct. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear. That was a modern colloquialism that said never. But we do know that one day heaven and earth will be remade. Yes. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter. And in the Hebrew language, that is the yod. It's a little apostrophe looking thing. It's their smallest letter. Not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen. Meaning like a little footing off perhaps one of our letters will by any means disappear. And of course, we know that means in their true intention, because clearly the dietary laws were adjusted by Jesus. 
will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, we could say that's heaven. We could say that's never. But I do find it fascinating that Jesus on the cross had a couple interesting words that he finished off with, which were, it is finished. It's accomplished. I thought that was fascinating. He said, in other words, nothing's moving until I say move. That's how it works. Verse 19, he said, lest everyone think I'm a rebel trying to raise up a bunch of people to fight against the law, to break laws. Let me be very clear on what my people are to do. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they will be dishonored by me. You will not have a good name in my crew. You do not disobey the commandments, nor do you teach others to do the same. That is unacceptable. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Those are who will have my honor. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, how do you surpass? Well, remember what we talked about last week in the Beatitudes. What was necessary was a heart reconstruction, a heart change. And the Pharisees weren't looking at the heart. They were looking at the outside. Unless you go deeper than that and you ever begin with the heart, we have yet to be again salvation process so let me make it very clear those of you that maybe are joining us if you do not engage with god with your heart in a biblical fashion and what that means you are not saved you understand that there is no such thing as being a good person and god letting it slide and not thinking it's a big deal actually that doesn't happen and i'll just tell you with all the authority i can find in scripture Don't bet on it, because it ain't going to happen. The Bible is very clear that there is only one way to heaven, and that is through clinging to Jesus Christ in faith. Amen? Amen. He said, now, let me mess with your head. (laughs) Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. Now, right there, he's quoting what? The sixth commandment. All right. Do not murder. And by the way, it's not kill. That is the wrong word. It's not the point of the context. It doesn't say don't kill. That's out of line with the rest of Scripture, especially because the Old Testament has capital punishment and the Old Testament has the war against the Canaanites where they were killing lots of folks. So kill is actually not the word. The word is actually murder. That's a personal vendetta or revenge. He said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And that part is a paraphrase of the Old Testament. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Meaning you thought you were going to slide because you didn't kill anybody. Game over. Anger is the problem. Murder is merely the outpouring of a heart intent. And that has always been under my judgment. Uh, God was very clear that the Lord looks upon the heart, it says in Scripture. That's very obvious. And so as obvious as if you murdered and we would all see it, as obvious as that is, is so it is to God, all the thoughts of your mind. Bottom line to murder is get someone out of the way that you don't want there anymore. They're bothering you. Well, in the same way, in the intent of your heart, you want the same thing. I wish they were dead. Get out of my way. You bug me. 
That same attitude is the attitude of murder. That same attitude is under judgment of God. The word there, there's two Greek words for anger. One is thumos, and that means to just blow up because something freaked you out and got you really mad and you exploded in anger at the moment. That is not the word here. Orge, that is actually the word that means stew on it, nurse it. Keep the heat going. I do not forgive you. I hold the anger in my heart. You will never be acceptable in my sight. And I burn towards you. That is the word here. If that is the intent of your heart, you might as well have been a murderer in the eyes of God. Because it's absolutely unacceptable. And you are now in danger of the judgment of God. Now, that's why everything just exploded. All the people went, you can't say that. Everybody at some point has had that in their heart. Likely, the majority of us right now have that in some container of our heart. He said, again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Raka is an untranslatable Hebrew word, which means you empty-headed fool. Now, This is not a heavy word. This is a word like everybody would use all the time in traffic. You understand what I'm saying? This is not this is not a shocking word. Okay, he said, if you say that because of the insult, you will be answerable to the Supreme Court of the Jews. And that is called the Sanhedrin. He said, but anyone who says you fool, that word in Greek is more where we get the word moron from. It means your character is in question for you are a moral fool and you stand in judgment on that person. Anyone who says you fool will be in dangers of the fire of hell. Now, this is unusual because Jesus is about to use that word. He uses it on his disciples. He uses it on his apostles. He uses it on the Pharisees. Jesus used this word more than once. Now, he's God. He's allowed to judge people. We're not. However, understand, when you begin to cast judgment upon someone else, you are now upon the dangers of the fire of hell. Now, it's not the word hell. That is not actually in there. It is the word Gehenna or Gina in Greek. And what that is, a very specific history location word. And here's how it goes. Southwest of Jerusalem, there was a valley. Now, a lot of scholars will argue back and forth about the legitimacy of this, but the basic understanding is that back in the Old Testament, that ravine area outside of Jerusalem was selected by King Ahaz, bad guy, to when he was following other idols, he began to set up worship to a pagan god by the name of Molech. Anybody ever remember hearing about this guy? Molech was worshipped in his highest form by burning your children alive. That's pretty hardcore. You would, they would heat up the altar and it had its arms outstretched like this with a little plate across them. And you would burn fire underneath it continually. And since it was metal, it would heat up. And then you'd place your baby and singe it and burn it alive. Now, Jerusalem was doing that. God's people were doing that. Well, needless to say, that was a tremendous abomination against God. So when Josiah, a good guy, comes sweeping through, he leads reforms, tears everything down and says that is such an abomination. I don't want anything ever built here again. This is garbage land. It is accursed. From that point forward, it became at some point in history, the city incinerator. 
They would pour all their garbage in the area because no one could ever build there. And they would constantly keep burning the refuse. They'd burn the rubbish because you can't have it keep building up. That was their landfill. Well, any time you read in the New Testament or many times portions of the Old Testament that refer to something like Gehenna, which is largely going to be New Testament. Anytime you hear words about hell, like the worm does not die, you ever remember reading that? That's because of the land heat. There were worms in there that were constantly around because that's what happens in refuse piles. And wherever it says the fire does not die down, that's actually from Gehenna. That's from that constant burning. They could see it outside the city. Because it was burning day and night, it never stopped. So most all the pictures that we have in our minds of hell come from this location. Does that make sense? All right, we move on. He said, therefore, and he gives two analogies, one voluntary and personal, the other one involuntary and court-based. He said, let me give you two examples on how to deal with your brother. First one, 23, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, meaning you did something to him. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now, that sounds really nice and easy because you'd go, oh, OK, so you're hanging out in church and there's somebody else, a brother, meaning another fellow believer. You know they have something against you because you harm them. Then it says, stop your worship right where you're at. Quit trying to get cleansing. Go figure the problem out. Sort it out with your brother. Make restitution. Cleanse the issue. Then get back in church. Quit playing the game and trying to say, oh, God will understand. Now, it sounds somewhat simple enough. However, if indeed Jesus is teaching in the region of Galilee, like we believe he is, where is the altar? There's only one legitimate altar by which to offer sacrifice, and that's in Jerusalem. That's 80 miles away. That takes four days to get there. So what did he just say? And all of you guys sitting here listening to me, if you have traveled four days, 80 miles to Jerusalem, and you're offering your animal sacrifice, stop in the middle of what you're doing, turn around, come back 80 miles, four days of travel, come back, straighten it out, then turn around, go 80 miles back, four days, and then go fix the problem. In other words, do we really want to have God convict us at the most inopportune times? We need to keep a short list at all times and handle matters immediately with our brothers and sisters. Because if you think you're just going to move on with life, God will bring down the hammer at the most awkward times. He moves on to the second analogy. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. So now we're with an enemy, not a brother. With your adversary who is taking you to court. Now, you don't have any choice in the matter. You did something wrong and he's busting you for it. And he's going to nail you to the wall in court and make you pay. He said, settle it while you're still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you to the officer. And you may be thrown into prison. And I tell you the truth, you won't get out until you pay the last penny. And in other words, and boy, won't that be awkward. In other words, really, does somebody have to force a Christian into jail to get him to pay his dues? Pay your dues and figure it out up front. What are we doing? Who are we? That's not how we act. Picks up the next one. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And indeed, that is a quote of the seventh commandment. But they assumed it was just the act. And they were like, all right, well, technically, no, I haven't committed adultery. Jesus said, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, and that word specifically means so as to want to have sex with her. It's kind of the point. Has already committed adultery with her in his heart you can imagine the gasp in the crowd they're like great now we're all going to hell 
Good job. It's just a sheer, they, they don't understand. How in the world can you even talk about this? Of course we've done that. Now, the tension is still there for us. We're a bit more warmed up to it because if you come into Christianity, usually that was referred to first. Was that your thoughts and attitude matter? To them, they had never even thought of the concept. It was kind of like, listen, I've kept it clean. I didn't do anything. They're like, that's not the point. You wanted to consume her for your own sexual pleasure, period. I don't care whether you acted on it or not. You're done. That's from God's point of view alone. Now, he says something rather extreme. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, that word is scandalon in Greek, and it means to bait you and trip you up. Gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, hack it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, Jesus was using this a lot. He uses it again in Matthew and adds in the foot. Okay, so he's just randomly throwing in body parts. And he's what is his point? His point is not to start chopping your body into bits. His point is what? Absolute radical self-denial. Get it done. Surgically remove it and do it extreme. Because if it's causing you to fall, then it might well lead you into hell. Therefore, absolutely remove it from your life. That's pretty extreme, I would say. Now, we move to the next. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. First of all, I'm sorry, where'd you get that? He said, it has been said. This is absolutely scribal law. This is a massive distortion of Deuteronomy 24.1. Now, what does that say? Well, take a look at it with me. Keep your finger there. Page 142. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. It's towards the left in your Bible. It's... One of the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the fifth is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Here's exactly what it says, and they take it way out of context, trying to find loopholes. Deuteronomy 24, 1. Really bizarre comment on it. It's kind of one of the only Old Testament teachings on divorce like that. And we're going to address divorce much more significantly when we study Matthew chapter 19, because that's actually the longer passage that we should interpret this in light of. So when we get there, we'll talk about divorce a little bit more. But Deuteronomy 24 says what? If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man. And if her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, sends her from his house. Or if he dies and her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled, that'd be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Don't bring such sin upon the land. The Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. All right. From that, they got. And, you know, God commanded us to give our wives a certificate of divorce. And he's like, what? What are you talking about? No, he didn't. That's not at all what it said. It's a totally different context. It says that you cannot go back to your first wife after you had another wife. That's all it said. It didn't say anything else. So. Jesus will argue this much more in, in uh, Matthew 19, which we will talk about. But let me just make one comment about Deuteronomy 24. Actually, two comments. Number one, notice how it says, if a man marries a woman who has become displeased, 
uh, displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. You guys see that that phrase right there, the indecent? This sparked a massive debate because nobody knows what the word means. Um, and you go, well, it's clear. It's adultery. No, it's not. That's not what the word means. Why? Because what's the penalty for adultery? Death. It's not divorce. Just kill her. You don't divorce her. You just have her stoned to death. So, no, that's not what it means. So it means something else. And, and because they didn't know what that meant, two massive schools rose up in Jesus's day and along the way. And these were two different rabbis. Rabbi Shammai took the hard line and said, regardless of what it means, it's a sexual issue. And it's very, very specific to a physical sexual act that she did against you. Hillel, the other guy, was a super broad guy, and he said, it's anything you find displeasing. Now, literally, in all these commentaries that went through the day, they had a whole list. She burns your food. You find someone better looking. If her attitude's wrong. Okay, so the modern day, who do you think they sided with? <laughs> all right? So they were all on Hillel's side. They were kind of like, hey, you know what, just... Or a divorce certificate. No, for whatever reason, it's kind of like you, you took the remote. What? Yeah, here you go. You know, one of those kind of things. It was so rampant and so extreme all over the place. Here's the other thing I want to point out. Uh, notice, uh, I'll just say this. A lot of people think that in the passage we're about to study, Jesus is arguing that you cannot get remarried. Real quick side note. In Jewish world, there's no such thing as divorce without the assumption of remarriage. Because you can't get divorced without saying the phrase, you are now free to marry any man you wish. Just a side note. It was assumed you were going to get remarried. There is no such thing as divorce without remarriage in the Jewish world. All right? We all clear on that? All right, let's back up to where we're at. Matthew chapter 5. Wish I had more time to go into some of these things with you, but we'll do that in Matthew 19. I tell you, he said, you've heard... This bogus material, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, and by the way, that is very specific to a physical act of adultery, um, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In other words, you're treating her like she's an adulteress. And as a matter of fact, you're making her the first one is not broken. You're sending her away. And anyone that marries her automatically creates an adulterous situation. You're out of line. It's not right. You cannot get divorced for any other reason but a physical act of adultery. Bam, lays it down. Now, in that culture, in our culture, it's odd. In that culture, it was absolutely ridiculous. The Greeks did it all the time. The Romans did it all the time. And the Jews were doing it all the time. It was way worse than our current society. Pick it up in verse 33 with our final remaining minutes. Again, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, meaning a promise, but keep the oaths that you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne or by earth or it's because it's its footstool or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head for you can't even make one hair white or black. Now, the reason why he gets into this is because there was another distortion. In the Old Testament, it's very clear that if you ever make a vow to the Lord, then you're absolutely held to it, period. It also says, don't use the Lord God's name in vain. Now, it's not talking about profanity. It's talking about don't put his name on something randomly or attach his name to it or his credibility. So they've made up this art form of manipulation. Let's say you're doing business with somebody in the ancient Jewish world. They would say, this is the finest meat 
I swear to you, by God, it's the perfect meat. All right. Now, what they just did is manipulated the situation by in entering God's name into it. Everyone went, oh, wow. OK, so God's involved. All right. Well, I guess it's the best meat ever. Well, when they knew it wasn't the best meat, they wanted to still create the same groove, but they didn't want to get busted for it. So they would say, I swear to you, by Jerusalem, this is the best meat. Now, everyone's going to go, dang, that's God's city. It must be the best meat. No, well, that's crossing your fingers and sticking them behind your back, because according to their scribal law, the only oath you had to keep were ones that involved God's name personally. So they had ways of getting around it. Jesus said, enough. This is garbage. What's his final saying on that? Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. In other words, anytime you have to go, I totally swear, it means that you basically have no credibility. If you're constantly qualifying your phrases, your integrity is in question. Yes, yes, no, no, be a man and woman of integrity. That's it, period, he said. And then he finishes with this last one. You have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And indeed, that is said three times in the first five books of the Bible. And you wonder, why is that? It sounds like a rough phrase. Why would you say what you punched me and knocked out my tooth? Well, I'm going to go punch you and knock out your tooth. As a matter of fact, it was a limitation of greater problems. You go, what do you mean? Have you guys noticed that in some tribes, even today, there's such things as family feuds? Okay, well, here's how it would go in the ancient world. You punch out my tooth, I will come back, and I will kill your sister. Because I will show you you don't mess with me. It's a gang mentality. You kill, if I kill your sister, you're going to come back and slaughter three of my brothers. And now we have a family feud, and we will continue to rage for all of history. So the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, was actually a limitation of going, listen, if you're going to get something back, it better be exact. You do not go one step more. Or we will all come down on you. It was a limitation. So it was actually a kindness thing. However, it was only supposed to be in the courts, not in personal relationships. By Jesus' time, they brought it into personal relationships and said, everything you do to me, I can get you back for equal. And that's when Jesus said his most powerful words, perhaps. Verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Let it go. Someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, that is a very significant phrase, because in that day, according to rabbinic law, you could get compensation if someone insulted you like that in, in public. Because here's how it works. When you wanted to insult somebody, you walk up and go, you are a worm, smack, and you smack him across the face or whatever. You'd say something and you'd irritate him, right? Well, that was a dishonoring thing. Well, if you wanted to doubly dishonor them, you had to do a backhand. Bam! And hit him across the face. Now, that's what this is. It's you got to hit him across the right cheek. Well, most of them are right-handed. So in order to hit somebody on the right cheek, you have to go this way. Well, that's worth double damages, according to rabbinic law. You could take them to court and get double the recompense for dishonoring you in public. Jesus said, I don't care what the rabbinic law says, let it go. You could go back and nail them to the wall. Don't do it. They insulted you. You're a slave of God. You have no rights. Let it go. That's what he's telling you to do. There's a bunch of other teaching on that, but we have to move forward. And if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt or your tunic, they would have multiple of those. Let them have your cloak, your outer heavy garment as well. Now, as a matter of fact, in Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 24, that is forbidden in Old Testament law that you're not allowed to take someone's cloak. Because if all their life falls apart and they have to go sleep in a park, 
Their cloak doubles as a blanket, and it's the only shelter they have. So you're actually never allowed to steal that or take that from somebody in a court of law. Jesus said, I don't care what the law says. Give it to them. They sue you for your shirt. Give them more. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. That comes from a Persian term about being under captivity of another nation. And indeed, the Jews were under captivity to who? The Roman Empire. At any moment, the Roman Empire could walk up to a Jew and force them into subjugation. And yet there's nothing you could do about it. If they said, I want you to carry my gear, my horse is sick. Carry my gear one mile. He said, don't do it. Oh, I can't believe it. Cursing at him under your breath. Walk the mile and turn around and say, sir, may I carry it another? That's what I'm asking you to do. That's a big deal. The eyes are following what he's saying. You have heard that it was said, oh, excuse me, 42, give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He said, I never said that. That's what everyone tells you to say. And yeah, you may have picked that up from the holy wars of the past. You may have picked it up because I said, love your neighbor, that somehow you thought your neighbor only meant Israel. In the, great, in the Good Samaritan story, he's going to address this again. Your neighbor's everybody. No, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be just like me, sons of the Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Even the pagans do that. No, no, no. We're different. My disciples look absolutely different. And we do not retaliate for personal gain. The word there to love your enemies is agape. It means seek their best interest. Um, being a doormat is not actually in someone else's best interest, just to let you know. But everything that Jesus told mankind to do, he modeled personally. You can't look back and go, oh, you never did that. Really? You mean when I said, Father, forgive them, or they don't know what they're doing while the nails are being driven into my hands? Is that what you meant? Oh, when they falsely accused me and I didn't say anything? Is that what you meant? I see. Every one of those laws were shown in Jesus' life. He caps it off with the most astounding statement, perhaps, of them all. And he says what? Hey, let me wrap it up for you guys. You ready? Verse 48. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So lest you think there is any lowering of standard. There is not. You have but one standard. Perfection. So if you want to learn more about the New Testament view and the law, you've got to read the book of Galatians by Paul. He talks a lot about the law. Hebrews is another good one, and so is Romans. But read the book of Galatians. It talks about this a lot. But here's the deal. I think the main reason Jesus made this teaching so extreme is not only that's what God wanted, but because he was showing us the need for a Savior. You understand? Nobody's cutting it. There's no such thing as a good person, because that's your standard. But I think that when Jesus came on earth and set aside the perks of the Godhead and began to operate as a Holy Spirit indwelt man, I think he role modeled something for us. 
And he role modeled this type of lifestyle. It is a drive for personal holiness. And indeed, we're not doing it on our own. A person that does not know Jesus has no power to do any of this stuff. You and I, if we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, do. You don't have to let your minds be garbage. God has given you the ability to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Everything that he's asked you to do, he's given you the power to do. But are we going to slip? Yes, on a consistent basis, because we are still fallible man and because we are still rebels at heart. However, the Bible is very clear in the next passage we're about to study is it says we get forgiven of our debts. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It says in Romans 12:1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, yes, there is coverage for your failure, but that is not a license. That is not a freedom to take it for granted. For Jesus said, you want to be like me? Walk like me. You want to say you're one of mine? This is how we act. You do not play off and say the law isn't about me anymore. It's still what God wants. He's just cutting you slack. That's the difference. So every one of us should left stung with what have I become? Jesus, make me different. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today for once again challenging us at our core that we might be like you. That I fear that, Lord, some of us have not grasped your grace and we are still running around guilt-loaded and others of us have taken your grace and then took a bath in it and then began to throw it around uselessly and have forgotten that you care about anything. Somewhere in the middle, I believe, Jesus, is what you're calling us to. Would you open our eyes to what you desire and enable us to get there? For we want to be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.